Exodus chapter 33, John 17. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let us go now to John chapter 17 for our New Testament reading. We will read verses 1 through 19. John 17. 
verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and none of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Did you know that Israel was encamped at Mount Sinai for about a year? They were there at that place for almost an entire year. In Exodus 19.1, we read, On the third new moon, or three months after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And in Numbers 10.11, we read, In the second year, in the second month, on the twentieth day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So then, from the time that Israel entered into the wilderness of Sinai to the time that Israel fully departed the wilderness of Sinai, nearly a year had passed. And a lot of things happened during that year. And I would like to briefly recount the things that happened during that year as Israel was encamped there by the mountain called Sinai. And the reason for this overview is so that we might better understand and appreciate the passage that is before us today. I do not think that this passage that we are considering today can be understood properly or fully appreciated unless we understand something about what God was doing with Israel at Sinai. When Israel encamped at Mount Sinai, God spoke to them through Moses and introduced the covenant that He would make with them. After this, the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments to Israel directly. They heard the voice of the Lord. The people received the moral law and begged that no further word be spoken to them, but that Moses function as a middleman. After this, 
Moses drew near to God while the people stood afar off. The Lord gave Moses additional laws, laws about worship and laws to govern Israel's unique society. During this time, the Lord did also restate the unconditional promises that he had previously made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning the land of Canaan and Israel's possession of it as a nation. The Lord did also promise to send an angel before Israel to guard them on the way and to bring them to the place that he had prepared. That is Exodus 23.20. After all of this, that is to say, after the proposal of the covenant and the communication of the terms of the covenant, the old Mosaic covenant was finally confirmed. Perhaps you remember that confirmation ceremony. Exodus 24 tells us all about that confirmation of the covenant. And after the covenant was confirmed, Moses was called to go up on the mountain and into the glorious presence of God. He was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. There he received instructions for the building of a tabernacle. He was also given instructions concerning the priests who were to minister there, what they were to wear, and how they were to be consecrated. So do not miss the significance of this, brothers and sisters. When Moses was given instructions concerning this tabernacle, this tabernacle was designed by God to be a place where he would be present with his people in a special way to bless them. What was this tabernacle for? It was the place where God would be present with his people to bless them in a very special way. Yes, it is true that God is omnipresent. What do we mean when we say that God is omnipresent? We mean that there are no boundaries to God. He is unlimited as it pertains to His presence. The heavenly realm which He created in the beginning, wherein He manifests His glory to the angels that He made, does not contain Him, you see. Does He manifest His glory in a special way in the heavenly realm that He created in the beginning before the angels of God, the elect angels of God? Yes, indeed He does. But is God confined to this heavenly realm which He has made? We say, no, He he is beyond it. He is omnipresent. He is not contained even by the heaven that He has made. Nor would He be contained by this tabernacle that He commanded Moses and Israel to make? Would he manifest his glory there in a special way? Yes, in the Holy of Holies. But he would not be contained there or confined by that space. Rather, he would be present with his people in a particular way to bless them. That was the design of the tabernacle. That's what it was designed for. It was, in fact, a replica of the heavenly throne room of God. It was a replica of Eden. It was a prototype of the new heavens and earth. And this tabernacle was designed to be placed in the midst of the tribes of Israel. It was to be constructed, and then where would it be placed? Right in the middle of Israel. The tribes of Israel were to encamp around it. They were going to be given special places to dwell. But the Lord would take up residence in this tabernacle. He would manifest His glory there, right in the middle of Old Covenant Israel. It was Such an important thing. It was to be a little taste of heaven for them. It was to be a little taste of what Adam and Eve enjoyed in Eden before sin entered the world. It was to be a little foretaste of the new heavens and earth, as well as a picture of Jesus the Messiah and the work that He would do to take His elect into the new heavens and new earth, that is, through the veil, through His broken body and shed blood. So then, this tabernacle, which was shown to Moses up on the mountain, 
was a wonderful and gracious gift to Israel. Wouldn't you agree? Of all the nations of the earth, Israel had been set apart as God's peculiar or chosen people. And God gave them many precious gifts. He gave them His law. He spoke to them through the prophets. He entrusted to them His precious and very great promises concerning the Messiah who would come into the world through them. Israel, in fact, was entrusted with very many precious things. But one of the precious things that was given to them was this tabernacle. It would be there that God would reside in the midst of them. He would be present with them in a special way so as to bless them. They would be invited to approach Him in a special way. This tabernacle was a gift to Israel. It set them apart from all of the other nations on earth during the age of the Old covenant. This tabernacle was all about God's presence, the presence of God in the midst of His people, and the way that God had provided for His people to come before Him, to worship, and to serve Him. So then, back to our storyline. What happened after these instructions concerning the building of the tabernacle were given to Moses up on the mountain? It was then that the people of Israel fell into idolatry and broke the terms of the covenant that God had made with them only 40 days earlier, making them liable to the curses of the covenant that had been threatened. Only 40 days had elapsed from the confirmation of the covenant. Moses went up on the mountain. He received the instruction concerning the tabernacle. And at the end of that time, the Lord said to Moses, "Um, the people, they're already rebelling against me. The people had said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And now they're living a life of utter rebellion before God. We have to remember that event if we are to appreciate the text that is before us today. Moses was gone for 40 days. The people grew impatient. And so they convinced Aaron, who was to be the high priest of Israel, to make an image for them to worship. The people wanted a God who would be present with them. Something visible, something tangible, and I would argue something controllable. And so Aaron foolishly crafted gold into an image of a young bull. And many within Israel took that image and ran full speed into polytheistic idolatry. They forgot the Lord who had redeemed them. They forgot the Lord who had led them in the wilderness and fed them there. They forgot the Lord with whom they had entered into a special covenantal bond. They broke that covenant of works by violating the terms of it. And what did they deserve? They deserved to be cut off. They deserved to be cut off. You will probably remember from the sermon last Sunday that the Lord threatened to blot Israel out entirely and to start fresh with Moses. But what did Moses do? He began to intercede for Israel. Uh, That means that he began to pray uh, to the Lord and to appeal for mercy on behalf of Israel. And what did the Lord do? The Lord relented from the judgments He had threatened. And in this way, through the means of the threat of righteous judgment, and through the means of Moses' faithful intercession, and by the Lord relenting from following through on His threat, the mercy and grace of God was shown forth, which was the Lord's decree from all eternity. So then, the Lord did not blot Israel out to start fresh with Moses. No, for His namesake, And for for the sake of the promises he had previously made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord showed mercy to Israel. 
Some of the individual idolaters were judged by the priests with a sword. Other individual idolaters were judged through a plague that God poured out on the people. But by the mercy of God, the nation as a whole was spared. God continued on with them. He remained in this covenant with them, though they had broken the terms of it. He showed mercy. He extended grace. There is a question that remains, though. What about the tabernacle? What about that tabernacle that was shown to Moses up on the mountain? It has not yet been built, has it? We're left kind of in this period of limbo now. Moses has interceded on behalf of Israel. The Lord has relented from pouring out His wrath. He had received these instructions concerning the tabernacle, but now He's down dwelling in the midst of the people again. The the, the tabernacle has not been built. Will it? Will it be built? Will the Lord still dwell in the midst of this people? Given their stiff-necked, hard-hearted, idolatrous rebellion, he would relent from pouring out his wrath for his name's sake. Yes, that is true. It is also true that he would bring his people into the land of Canaan in fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham concerning his descendants. That also is true. But would the Lord tabernacle in the midst of Israel and invite them to draw near to him in worship? That is the question that is still looming as we come to the text before us today. Will this tabernacle be built? Will the glory of the Lord fill it? Will it be placed in the midst of Israel? Of course, we know how the story goes. We know that Israel would eventually build the tabernacle according to the design that God revealed to Moses on the mountain. Exodus chapter 36 verse 1 through 40 verse 33 tells us all about the building of the tabernacle. And we know that the Lord did fill this tabernacle with His special presence. In fact, the book of Exodus concludes with an account of the glory of the Lord filling this tent. In verses 33 and following of Exodus 40, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys." This is how the book of Exodus concludes. That is the final verse there that I have just read. This is marvelous to consider, by the way. And I will not dwell long on this point, but I want you to note it now. The story of the book of Exodus begins with a story of redemption from Egyptian bondage. And then how does it conclude? It concludes with an account of the glory of God filling the tabernacle that is sent within the midst of of His people. Redeemed to worship redeemed to be indwelt by the glory of God. If that story does not sound familiar to you, then then I don't know what to say. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb in order that God's presence might be with us, that we might enter into His presence and commune with Him and be filled, filled with His Holy Spirit now and certainly in the new heavens and new earth. So please connect these things. The story of the book of Exodus begins with redemption. It ends with the manifestation of God's glory in the tabernacle in the midst of Israel. And so too it is for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. So you can see that the year Israel spent at Sinai was a very eventful one. 
In addition to what has already been stated there at Sinai, the people of Israel would build the tabernacle and observe the first of the yearly Passover feasts. Numbers 9 tells us about that before moving on in stages towards Canaan, the land of promise. With all that said, let us now go to our text for today. And as we go there, we must feel the unresolved tension concerning the question, would the Lord tabernacle in the midst of His people now that they broke the covenant through their idolatry? That is the tension we must feel. We must enter into the narrative at this point with this unresolved thing. Would the Lord still tabernacle in the midst of His people now that they broke the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, through their idolatry? The text that is before us can be divided into three parts. Firstly, in verses 1 through 11, the Lord threatens to withhold the blessing of His presence from Israel. Secondly, in verses 12 through 16, Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. Thirdly, in verses 17 through 23, the Lord shows mercy to Moses and to Israel and agrees to dwell in the midst of them. First of all, let us consider the threat. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. Two things must be noted about this verse. One, building upon the last passage, the Lord here reiterates His promise to bring the people of Israel into the land which He swore to give to them as the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God's grace and His covenant faithfulness are here put on display once more. According to the terms of the Mosaic covenant, Israel deserved to be cut off. But the Lord had made unconditional promises to Abraham regarding the land. Paul, the apostle, speaks to this reality when he says in Galatians 3.17, This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul makes much of this in Galatians 3. And what is he here saying? He's saying we have to consider that there are two different covenants in force. God made unconditional promises to Abraham, and when God entered into a covenant with the people of Israel in the days of Moses and gave His law, the law did not annul or make null and void the promises previously made. The promises stand no matter how disobedient and rebellious the people are. So this law was given, but the law did not wipe out the promises previously made. And that is indeed the dynamic that we see here in the book of Exodus. Why did the Lord show mercy to Israel? Why did He show mercy to them? Not because of the covenant that He made, had made with them at Sinai in the days of Moses, but because of the promises previously made concerning the land being theirs and concerning the Messiah coming into the world through them to bless the nations. What, was, what, 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 what did the people of Israel have to do in order to bring those things to pass? Answer, nothing. They were unconditional promises. But the law that was given in the days of Moses was conditional. The covenant that he made with them in those days was conditional. Based upon the terms of the Mosaic covenant, the people deserved to be blotted out, but God still was committed to bring them into the land of Canaan in fulfillment to the promises previously made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Indeed, God was still committed to bring the Messiah into the world through them to bless the nations. Why? Because he had said that he would do so unconditionally. 
to Abraham. The second thing to be noticed about verse 1 is this. Though God's grace is here shown forth, there is also in this statement the threat of judgment. For here the Lord commanded that Israel move on from Sinai, but you will notice that they did not yet build the tabernacle. Do 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 you get the picture here? Fine, I'll still bring you into Canaan. Fine, I will still bless the nations of the earth through you. I think that is also implied. But forget about the tabernacle. Forget about it. I'm not going to dwell in the midst of you. I'm not going to come up among you because if I do, I'll consume you, you see. So there is a kind of threat of judgment here. It's time for you to leave, Moses. It's time for you to take your people. Notice how the Lord does this again. He refers to the people of Israel as those that Moses had brought up out of, out of Egypt. It's time for you to take your people away from this place, even though the tabernacle has not yet been built. In other words, I am going to withhold my special presence. You've lost that blessing because you have broken the terms of this covenant that I have made with you here at Mount Sinai. In fact, verses 2 and 3 confirm that this is exactly what is going on. There the Lord says, I will send an angel before you and will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So then, we learn here that the Lord would still go before Israel through His angel, just as He did before in the pillar of fire and cloud, but He would not go up among the people, that is to say, He would not dwell in the midst of them in the tabernacle according to the plan He had shown to Moses on the mountain. Why? Lest He consume the people because of their sin, for they were a stiff-necked or rebellious people. In verse 4, The response of the people to this disastrous word is described to us. In fact, the response is a bit surprising. It's very different than what you might expect, given how wicked the people were only a short time before. When the people heard this disastrous word, note they considered it to be a disastrous word. This idea that the Lord would go before them and give them the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, but would not dwell in the midst of them, seemed disastrous to them. When they heard this disastrous word, what did they do? They mourned. No one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, your stiff-necked people, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, from Mount Sinai, onward. So clearly Israel had been purified somewhat. The idolaters had been put to death by the sword and by the plague. And Israel had been humbled. If the people were still arrogant and worldly, then they would have been content to have the land without the Lord's presence. Are you following me? If the people were still arrogant, rebellious against the Lord in the heart, If they were still worldly, only concerned with worldly pleasures and worldly possessions, then I suppose they would have been perfectly content to hear the word, I'll go before you to lead you into Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, without the presence of the Lord. Sure, we'll take that. That sounds wonderful. Let us go. Let us get on with it. Let us go on our way. But because Israel had been purged 
of the egregious idolaters and humbled somewhat, they in fact mourned over the thought of the Lord's presence being withheld from them. They mourned inwardly in the heart and they mourned externally by removing their jewelry. In fact, they would not put it back on from that day forward. They would not dress themselves in that that haughty way ever again, uh, the text tells us. Now, I suppose I should press you all with a question at this point. Would you be content to have earthly blessings without the Lord's presence? Would you be content to have earthly blessings without the Lord's presence? Or to state it another way, would you be happy to enter into the new heavens and earth if God was not present there? Would you be happy to go to heaven? Would you be happy to go to paradise without the Lord's presence? Would you be content with that? If you were to answer that question honestly, I think it would reveal a great deal about your heart. The worldly man, the idolater, has his heart set on the things of this world. The worldly man, the idolater, loves health, wealth, and prosperity and thinks very little of God and the far-surpassing value of knowing Him, of being in a right relationship with Him and dwelling in His glorious presence forever and ever. But the one who is spiritual, the one who has a true and sincere love for the Lord in their heart would say, heaven would not be heaven at all if God's presence is not there. In fact, if you were to bless me with every earthly blessing now, but yet withhold from me the presence of God, communion with God, a right relationship with God, it would be nothing to me. It would be like rubbish. There are so many passages of Scripture that come to mind when thinking on this subject, which speak of the surpassing worth of knowing God and being in a right relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ so that we might behold His glory forever and ever. Indeed, only a fool would exchange that, what theologians call the beatific vision, for the treasures of this earth. You would be a fool to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul in the sense of not being brought into the presence of God to dwell there and to enjoy His presence forever and ever. Only a fool would exchange the riches of this world for that, the beatific vision, life in heaven in the presence of the glory of God. There's one passage that came to mind when considering this, and that was Psalm 27.4, where King David famously says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire In his temple. I love that passage, especially when you understand the full significance of what it means to dwell in the presence of the Lord in his temple. King David, with all of the riches that he had, all of the power that he had, said, You know, the one thing I want more than anything else, I I would trade everything to have this that is, to have the ability to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever, and to, to be in God's presence, to gaze at his beauty, to gaze at his glory. That there would be far better than anything else. And of course, David understood what the temple there in Jerusalem in his day signified, namely, life in the presence of the Lord forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. I think it's a very important question to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters. Would we be content to have 
all of the riches of the earth, but not the Lord's presence with us. Or to enter into heaven, but to not have the Lord's presence there. If we've been born again, and if we have a heart of love for the Lord, we would say, no, the thing that makes heaven heaven, and the thing that makes life wonderful now, is God's presence with us, our communion with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Verses 7 through 11 of Exodus 33 are very interesting. Uh, Here we have a kind of parenthetical remark inserted to more clearly show what the Lord meant when He threatened to not go up among the people. In verse 7, we read, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. It is important to understand that this tent was not the tabernacle, for the tabernacle had not yet been constructed but is meant to be contrasted with the tabernacle. This tent that is here spoken of in this little parenthetical remark that interrupts the narrative is meant to be contrasted with the tabernacle. During this time, after Moses had come down from the mountain to find the people in idolatry, and before the covenant covenant was graciously renewed and the tabernacle finally built, Moses would set up a tent. There he would commune with God, and there people would come to inquire of the Lord, When Moses was gone from the tent, Joshua would guard it. As I've said, this was not the tabernacle, but it's to be contrasted with it. And I want you to notice a few things about it. First of all, notice where it was set up. Where was this tent, which Moses did call the tent of meeting? Where was it set up? Not in the midst of the tribes of Israel as the tabernacle was to be, but outside the camp, as I read the text again, you probably heard that emphasis. Moses went out, and this tent was set up outside the camp. There is this repetition in the text to, to emphasize that the tent was set, set up at a distance from the people of Israel. Notice who ministered at this tent. It was not Aaron and the Levites, but Moses alone. Joshua, his trusted servant, would keep it. The reasons for this are obvious given Aaron's recent rebellion. Three, notice that the people did not draw near to this tent as a community, but stood afar off. Uh, They would worship the Lord, but where would they worship the Lord from? They would not come to the tent or enter into its courtyards. It did not have courtyards, you see, but you, you can see the contrast here. They would worship the Lord from afar off. They would bow down as the Lord descended upon that tent and and communed with Moses there from the doors of of their tents. And so the the, the entire narrative here is communicating that the Lord is still with His people, but He is at a distance. He is certainly not present in the midst of them. We are not told how long this arrangement lasted. Was it for weeks or months? Really, it does not matter. The message is clear. There was a period of time between the breaking of the Mosaic Covenant, 
with that episode of idolatry with the golden calf or young bull. There was a period of time between the breaking of the Mosaic Covenant and the renewal of it, which will be told to us in Exodus 34.10 and following, where the Lord threatened to lead His people into the land, but to withhold His presence. And this tent and Moses' ministry there are put forward as an illustration of that period of time and of that dynamic that was now present because of Israel's sin. The Lord would still go before them to bring them into Canaan, but He would be at a distance from the people. He would not dwell in the midst of them as He had first said in the tabernacle that was shown to Moses up on the mountain. I think it is very important for us to view this period of time as a time of testing for Israel and as a time of purification for them. They sinned as a nation. The Lord judged them and withdrew His presence from them. What would they do? Would they humble themselves before the Lord? Would they sorrow over their sin? Would they cry out for mercy? Or would they grow even more hard-hearted, stubborn, and rebellious? In this text, we see that the nation mourned and that Moses interceded. So let us now consider Moses' intercession in verses 12 through 16. The same thing must be said here, which was said in our consideration of the previous passage. Whenever the Lord reveals to one of His people the judgment that He is about to pour out, it is an invitation for that person to intercede. He did this with Abraham regarding Sodom, remember. I'm about to do this, and it was an invitation to intercede. I think Jonah experienced something similar, didn't he, concerning the destruction of Nineveh. Jonah was not faithful as Moses was. Um, but it was an invitation to, to, to plead with, for repentance and to intercede on behalf of, of the people. Here the Lord threatens to withhold His presence from Israel as a consequence of their sin. And here Moses proves himself yet again to be a faithful servant in God's house as he intercedes on behalf of the people. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. So what does Moses request here? Except an even greater knowledge of God than what he had been previously given. This is truly an incredible request. For we know that the Lord had already revealed Himself to Moses in very profound ways. He spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And He there revealed the meaning of His name Yahweh as the I Am. Moses was given a glimpse into heaven along with Aaron and the other 70 elders of Israel. He was invited up on the mountain to receive the law of God and instructions concerning this tabernacle. Indeed, we have just heard that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But Moses is very persistent. He, he's greedy in a good way here. What does he do except come before the Lord and say, Give me more. Reveal yourself further. Show me your ways so that I might live in a way that pleases you. That is essentially Moses' prayer. He comes before the Lord and probably reflect, reflecting upon this threat of the presence of God being withheld from the people. He says, no, I'm greedy. <laughs> I'm greedy for more of your presence. Not less, I want more. 
Show me your ways. Reveal yourself to me more thoroughly. Show me your glory will be his prayer. And you can see in this text that he asks the same thing for the people of Israel too. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight, he says. But he makes mention of, of the people of Israel here. He's very, he's very tactful, I think. He says in verse 13, Consider too that this nation is your people. The Lord had just referred to the nation as Moses' people. And Moses says, No, give me more. Show more of yourself to me. Reveal your glory to me. But don't forget this people. They too need to grow in their knowledge of you. They too need your presence. They too need to behold your glory. Do not withhold your presence from us, but come near to us, draw near to us, reveal your glory to us. And more than this, reveal your ways. Show us who you are so that we might honor you. That is what Moses requested for himself and for Israel in this moment. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you have the same desire to know God? Do you have the same desire to know God? It's so easy for our religion to grow formal, dry, and lifeless. It's very easy for us to love the church. It's very easy for us to love one another in Christ Jesus, to love sound doctrine, to even love Jesus. But here we see that Moses is asking for something more than all of this. He is asking to receive for himself a vision of the glory of God. He wants the presence of God, nothing less. And he is insistent that this is what the people need. In this sermon, brothers and sisters, there's really going to be one point to it. And you could see it developing. I pray that you desire communion with God. I pray that above all else, you desire God's presence to behold His glory. I pray that you desire for Him to be near to you and you to be near to Him. All of our religion, all of our doctrine, all of our practice is useless if it is not for that. If it is not aimed at that thing. Notice how persistent Moses is. Give me more, Lord. And give it to your people too. Have mercy upon them. Show them grace. You'll notice here that Moses is not just interested in seeing a vision of God. Catching a glimpse of Him from afar off. He is not just interested in having an emotional experience with God. You see. He here requests that the Lord would show him his ways. Show me your ways, O Lord. In other words, help me to understand who you are and what you are all about. There are so many, I think, in the church today, professing Christians who, who, who want to know God, but they, they want to have a vision of him or they want to have some sort of emotional experience concerning him. We do not truly know other beings in that way, do we? If I see you walking across the parking lot, you know, I, do, I cannot say I know that man or I know that woman because I, have, because I have observed them. You do not know another being if you just observe that being from afar. You do not know another being if you have an emotional experience concerning them. You see them and you say, I'm, I'm attracted to them in this way or that. You do not know a person. When do you know a person? When do you come to truly know them in an intimate way? The very first thing you do is you must learn their name. Is that not the very first thing that you do when you come to know a person truly? You do not see them from afar. It's not a mere emotional experience that you have, but you say, hello, my name is, and what is your name? 
You learn their name. And if you were to grow in your knowledge of that person and in your relationship with them, you, not, you do not only know their name, but you come to understand who they are, what their attributes and characteristics are, and what their ways are. A husband and wife know one another in this way. They, they know one another so well over time, they begin to think the same way. They, 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 they can anticipate how the other person is going to think or feel. You see, there's that intimacy there, and so it is with God. We cannot chase after a vision of the glory of God or some emotional experience concerning Him. We must come to know His name. We must come to know His ways. And that is what Moses here requests in uh, this passage. He wants to know the Lord's ways. I'm reminded of that prayer that Jesus prayed as recorded in John 17, which we read earlier. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his high eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I mentioned this passage at this time in order to reemphasize what was said earlier. This is eternal life. What is eternal life really? What is the essence of it? What is it really about? This is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, God. This is eternal life, to know God. To know Him not from a distance, but to know His name, to know His attributes, to know His ways, to behold His glory. This is eternal life. And this is the reason that Christ came, to forgive us of our sins, yes, to reconcile us to God the Father, and to bring us safely into the new heavens and new earth, where God's glory will fill all, where we will dwell in His presence forever and ever, where we will know Him and see Him face to face, as it were. The Lord was very quick to show mercy to Moses and to Israel, saying in verse 14, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So Moses intercedes, and the Lord says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Presence and rest. Presence and rest. These two words could be used to describe the new heavens and earth, can't they? What will the new heavens and new earth be like? Well, so much of that is mysterious to us, but we know this. In the new heavens and new earth, we will dwell in the presence of God, and the new heavens and new earth we will find our rest in Him. Presence and rest. These two words could be used to describe the new heavens and new earth, and by the grace of God, Israel would be given a little foretaste of the presence of God in the tabernacle and the rest of God once they would come to take possession of Canaan. The tabernacle and the land of Canaan were a little foretaste of God's presence and of God's rest, which will be ours for all eternity in Christ Jesus. The Lord was quick to show mercy, but Moses continued to intercede in verse 15 with even more boldness. I think he kind of gains more boldness from this mercy that is shown. He said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? I've already said that Moses got it. He understood that the real treasure was not rest in Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, but God's presence. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, he says. 
For Israel to go up from there and into Canaan without the presence of the Lord would be like setting off on your honeymoon vacation without your bride. Yes? It's not about the destination. It's about who you're with in that moment, isn't it? It's not at all about the destination. What a sad honeymoon to go to a beautiful place. To go to paradise, as it were, but to forget your bride at home or to forget your groom. It's not about the place. It's about who is there with you. And so it was with the people of Israel on their journey to Canaan. It was not about the place, the land flowing with milk and honey. How wonderful that would be. This people was sojourning in the wilderness, in dry and desert places. They must have longed for Canaan, the, new, the, 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 the land flowing with milk and honey. But, but Moses got it, and I think the people began to get it, that to be there in that precious land, but without God's presence, would miss the point entirely. Certainly, Canaan would not function to prefigure the new heavens and new earth appropriately if the Lord did not dwell in the midst of His people there in the tabernacle and later the temple. Now, let us briefly consider the mercy of God that was shown. The Lord has already relented from His threat to not go up amongst the people in verse 14, saying, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But the Lord was especially kind to Moses. In verse 17 we read, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. Indeed, Moses and all of Israel with him had seen the glory of God manifest on Sinai. This must mean, show me more of you, Lord. Give me all that I can handle. That's what I think Moses' prayer is. I've seen your glory. I saw it in the burning bush. I saw a glimpse into the heavenly realm. We saw your power displayed up on the top of Mount Sinai. In fact, I was invited to go up into your presence there where I received the law. I've seen your glory, but give me more. Give me all that I could handle. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That is Exodus 33, 19. When the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, this does not imply that there is badness in God. Of course, there is no darkness in God at all, no evil, no badness. The word goodness can mean beauty. Here the Lord agreed to show Moses his beauty. The Lord agreed to show Moses his beauty. And, and when the Lord said that he would proclaim his name before him, the Lord, it does not only mean that God's name, that is Yahweh, would be uttered or pronounced for, no, for Moses. Indeed, the name Yahweh was already known. It was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. I argued then when we considered that text that it was known to the patriarchs before them. But here what is meant by the Lord uh, revealing His name, Yahweh, to Moses is that the Lord would give greater understanding of what the name Yahweh signified or meant. At the burning bush, it was revealed to Moses that the name Yahweh signified God's self-existence. He is the great I Am. That was the new thing that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. But here, more is revealed to Moses. Moses is given more of an idea and understanding of who God is. In fact, verse 19 goes on by saying, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Certainly, that truth concerning God was revealed in the episode surrounding the worship of the golden calf. All of Israel deserved to be cut off. Some were judged. Some were spared. Aaron was one who was spared, mind you. And yet he was a guilty sinner in this regard. He fell short of what God had called him to do as 
as a, a leader amongst the Israelites, and yet Yahweh was merciful. And he has the sovereign right to show mercy to whomever he wills. To know Yahweh is to know this about him, that he is a merciful and gracious God, and he will show mercy to whomever he will show mercy. He will show grace to whomever he will show grace. To know Yahweh is to know this truth, this foundational truth about him. In verse 20, it is clarified that although Moses would be shown the beauty and glory of the Lord, and though he would receive a greater revelation of the Lord than what he had previously received, he would not see the Lord as he is, for no man can see the Lord as he is and live. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is a fascinating little text, isn't it? The Lord is going to give Moses a greater glimpse of his glory than he had previously enjoyed. But it is qualified here that Moses would not see the fullness of God, the fullness of God's glory as he is. We know that God is spirit. He does not have hands, a back, or a face. He is a most pure spirit. He does not have body parts, therefore. And yet in this passage, human body parts are attributed to him so that we might comprehend the truth of what Moses experienced up on the mountain. He was blessed to behold the beauty and glory of the Lord and to receive a greater revelation concerning His name and His ways. The revelation He received was true and it was marvelous, but it was in no way a complete and unmediated revelation of the divine nature. Man, much less sinful men and women, are incapable of fully comprehending God. We may know God truly, but we cannot know Him exhaustively. A finite creature is incapable of comprehending the infinite one who is the creator of all things, seen and unseen. And that truth is brought before us beautifully here in this passage. You know, there are some passages in Holy Scripture that really seem to get to the heart of things. And I think this is one of them, in my opinion. What is the point or aim of our redemption in Christ Jesus? Why? Has He freed us from bondage to sin? Why has He washed away the sins of those who believe in Him? Why has He made us right in the sight of God by clothing us with His righteousness? Why has He promised to bring us into the new heavens and earth wherein we will enjoy eternal rest? What is the point of it all? What is the aim? Is it not that we would be reconciled to the Father? To be in a right relationship with Him so that we might worship, serve, glorify, and enjoy Him forever and ever. Is this not the aim of our redemption in Christ Jesus? Indeed, this is the aim or highest objective of our redemption in Christ Jesus. You have been freed so that. You have been washed so that. You have been justified so that. Those words, so that, are so important for they speak to the aim of it all. So that you might know God, behold His glory, worship, serve, and enjoy Him forever and ever. You were made for this. You were redeemed for this. You were made to commune with your Maker, and through Christ it is possible. 
And it is possible now, brothers and sisters, if God has been merciful to you to give you the gift of faith and repentance, then your communion with God is to be enjoyed today. It is to be enjoyed now. You have been freed, washed, justified, and clothed in Christ's righteousness now so that you might enjoy communion with God, not only in the new heavens and earth, but now, for God is present with His people. He dwells in the midst of us, for you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What God did with Israel so long ago to redeem them, entering into a covenant with them, and to set His tabernacle in the midst of them, wherein His glory would be manifest, was an earthly picture of these heavenly and eternal realities that are ours now in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the eternal Word of God tabernacled amongst us, and through Christ, you, church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. May David's song be ours, now and for all eternity. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we long for the new heavens and new earth, which will be filled with your glory, where we will enjoy sweet communion with you in your presence forever and ever, having been washed by the blood of the Lamb. God, I pray that we would enjoy this even now, for you are with us. You have poured out your Spirit upon us and in us to dwell in the midst of us. Oh God, may we be mindful of these things. I pray for myself, for my family, for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, that we would enjoy your presence, O God, that we would seek to commune with you and to know you more and more. Give us a greater understanding of your name, of your attributes, of your, uh, and of your ways. Draw us closer to you through Jesus Christ, whom you have sent for us, for the forgiveness of sins. It's in his name that we pray and all of God's people say. Amen.